will continue our worship today by reading the Bible together. So our first scripture reading this morning can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, and that's page 155 of the Church Bible. You can also follow along on the screens. Again, that's Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and the children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may be well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Our second reading will come from Revelation 2, starting in verse 1 through to verse 7. And that can be found on page 1062 of the Church Bible as well. The, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and I have not and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, how do you go with receiving feedback? You know, your wife, husband, your boss, your adult children, your friend says, we need to chat. How do you go in receiving feedback? I presume you're cool as a cucumber. You hear it. You say, thank you. I own that. I'm sorry. I know that wouldn't have been hard, and you move on, right? Not, right? What is it when someone gives you feedback, highlights a blind spot, highlights an issue, some behaviour that you're doing that needs to change that gets us all worked up, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. You sort of breathe in, your heart starts a bit pumping, your sort of mind gets flooded, right? And what do you do? You get defensive. You say things like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, right? You don't know what it's like to be me. You have no idea. Now that we're being honest, let me tell you what your problem with you is, you know? We just get defensive. What is it about us? Question, how do you think you'd respond 
if Jesus gave you feedback on how you're going as a Christian, if Jesus gave us feedback of how we're going as a church, because that is exactly what's happening in Revelation 2 to 3, where seven churches are given direct feedback from Jesus himself. And we get to hear that feedback. Now, if I was to ask you, have you ever read someone's letter or email that wasn't addressed to you, but about addressed to someone else about how they're going? Now, all of us have done it, right? We feel guilty doing it. But you don't have to feel guilty hearing this performance review from Jesus to these churches. You're given permission. In fact, when this letter was given, they were given access to all the other churches' letters. And they were written down so we can read it too. So over the coming weeks, we're going to hear each letter one by one over the next seven weeks and hear what does Jesus have to say to the encouragements and the feedback to them. Now, we're starting with the Church of Ephesus. Now, I presume when they got this letter, Church of Ephesus, they would have done what we would have done, right? You know when you see a photo and you look for yourself first? You know, I presume they would have read their letter first. But then they would have read the other letters, churches to Smyrna, Thyatira, yada, yada, yada. And they would have seen a couple of things. Firstly, the obvious. Each church is different. Each church is different. I mean, for one thing, they're located in different places. Ephesus, for example, where these guys were, it was a, a big city by the harbour, visually stunning. People often confuse it for the capital. It wasn't. Sounds like a city you may live in, right? That was Ephesus. The Ephesus began differently. If you went to Ephesus Belonging Course, you'd find out Paul and Priscilla Aquila founded this church, evangelized this church. Paul warned in Acts 20 that Paul's teachers were lurking, and by the time you get to 1 Timothy, that was true. This their story. But you would also see that each church has different issues. And when we all sin, but we all don't sin in the same way. And each church has their strengths, their weaknesses. Some have strengths that become weaknesses. They all have their idols, their problems. So the differences would be obvious. But what would be striking as they read each letter to all the different churches was that one thing would stand out. Sure, every church is different, but they are all part of something larger. They have more in common than we realize. Because each letter has the same sort of features in it. I mean, it starts the same way, to the angel of the church. It ends the same way, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They all have a promise in them. They all have an aspect of Jesus taken from the vision in chapter 1, peppered throughout. And as they're reading these similarities, they would realize one thing. And it sounds obvious, but it's profound. Before they are the church of Ephesus, they are God's church. Before we are the bridge church, we are God's church. And I know that sounds simple, but because our experience of church is people, we see people, we welcome people. We have teams, we, we serve alongside, we're connected with people, and it's so easy to humanize and just humanize the church, but it is first and foremost God's church. He's the one speaking to the angel, to the church. 
God the Son, Jesus, is walking among his churches, looking after the Holy Spirit, is speaking, opening the hearts and minds for us to hear the word. That every church, no matter how different, whether our church, a church in Spain, a church all around the world, though they might be different, every true church has the same story. A group of people saved by Jesus, brought into community by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. That's the same story for every church. So let's have a look exactly what is the feedback that Jesus gives the church of Ephesus. He starts with encouragements. Have a look, verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. So what he realizes is when Jesus ascended to the Father after he rose again, it's not like he's just up there watching Netflix, right, until he returns. No, no, no. Jesus' eyes are on his people, eager to see what they are to do. Like a parent watching their son or daughter on the first day of school, seeing how they'll go, Jesus' eyes are fixed on his people. Because there's a danger where we think that, you know, we are saved not by what we do, but what Christ has done. And that is true, right? That we're justified by faith, not by the actions that we do, right? And that is true. His love is unconditional. But we can think of Jesus as some sort of robot, immune to what we actually do. But no, no, no. His love is unconditional, but his pleasure or displeasure of us is based on our behavior. And when he sees you living a godly life, when he sees the generosity shown to others, when he sees you forgiving others, when he sees you love your non-Christian spouse, when he sees you care for your children even though it's not hard, when he sees you welcome the stranger, send the encouraging text to the person who is difficult in your When he sees that and he is seeing it, it brings a smile to his face. What you do pleases him when you live for him. But there's more encouragements. What does he go on to say? I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Not only is this church at at working hard, serving hard, but they're also working hard at sticking to biblical truth. That people back in the day would come in to to the gathering church of Ephesus and say, hey, I am an apostle. I have a new message. But they're not a naive church to think, well, I mean, he says he's an apostle. I guess he is, right? No, no, no. They tested when people said they're an apostle, they have authority. And they found them to be false. And you and I, when it comes to every church, right, but this church, uh, whether online or, or people come and say, I have a teaching about God, a new revelation, new insight that is contrary to God, you test it. We don't naively think, well, I mean, they say they're a Christian. I mean, she's got a cross around her neck. I mean, she... No, we test everything. We do not want to be a naive people. And Jesus commends them for it, that they cannot stomach evil. They cannot hold false teaching, but a good intolerance is found in this church where they hold on to God's word. But more encouragements. Verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. See, the pressure of this church would have been immense. I mean, they're probably the only church in a massive city. And the pressure for them to conform to the gods of their time, to the cultural pressure of their time, would be immense, like it is for us. 
They would be like an island with the waves pounding against them. But what did they do? They they endured. And those words, they did not grow weary. Because when you follow Jesus, when you stand for God's word, opposition will come, right? And then what will follow is a weariness. They get exhausted. And the temptation is to just go silent. To blend in like a chameleon, just to blend in. And every church that has gone liberal, that has walked away from God's word, you'll often find weary pastors or weary Christians because it is so easy. You and I know this. It is so easy to go with the tide and go against it, right? But Jesus commends them. They have not grown weary. They have endured hardship for my name. That they know that following Jesus, it's not like chess. It's more like footy. There's going to be bumps and bruises along the way. Now, if you were to give a Google review on this church, you might be tempted to give them five stars, right? I mean, they're active, they're vibrant, their faith is in action, they're evangelical, they love the Word of God. I mean, they've copped it, and yet they're not cowards. They've stood up, right? They're not just giving to peer pressure. But what does Jesus say? Verse 4, what's his review? Yet I hold this against you. Now, they're powerful and painful words, aren't they, when they come from Jesus. I hold this against you. In other words, there's an area of your life that I'm against, an area that disappoints me, that hurts me. That's what he's saying. What is it? You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, this love, what was the first love? I mean, what's the first love of any Christian. It's not necessarily truth or people, the church. It's, it's Jesus. The first love of meeting Jesus, knowing the gospel, that he died and rose again. That's the first love. And what did he say? You've forsaken it. In their keenness for truth, in their keenness to work hard, they have forgotten who they love. The Winter Olympics have just been, oh, they're around this time, the Winter Olympics, and you may be watching them. And you might be seeing the figure skating. Here's some on the screen. In the, 19, in the 90s, back in the day, there was a movie called The Cutting Edge where Kate Mosley was a figure skater. And she was very good at it, but she was also rich and a bit of a brat and hard to work with people. The coach found her a partner. And they went to the Olympics in the movie and they did their figure skating and the, um, the commentator said these words. What they did was perfect. They did everything right, but they were missing the joy of the sport and the love of one another. He could see it. They did everything right, but their love for each other, and the spot was missing. And when Jesus is talking to the Ephesus, saying, you're doing everything right, but there's one thing missing. Your love of me. Now, sometimes you can see it in the church, but God always sees it because he knows our hearts. He knows the real you. 
Now, we have no idea how the Ephesus church responded to this. I presume, because they're human, they would have got defensive, right? I presume they would have said, yes, Jesus, but look, I'm defending the truth, right? Christianity is fragile in this city. And you can almost hear Jesus saying, yeah, but remember, I hold the seven stars. It's my church. I've got it. I mean, they might be saying, yeah, but Jesus, I've been working hard. I've been serving. I've been giving. I've been, I've been going nonstop. And you see, Jesus almost saying, I love your obedience, but I want your affection. I want your love. The closest analogy I've got to this is, is, is marriage, right? Where a couple, they fall in love, and you know about it because their social media is littered with photos, right? And they, they fall in love, and then they grow on in love, and the social media decreases, so that's a good thing. But then they get married, and then... Kids may come along, buy a house, and things to get busy and busy and busy. And and there's a lot of things to do. And and then all of a sudden, they roll over one day and look at their spouse. And it dawns on them, I don't know if I really love you anymore. And it's a scary thought. And it's even scarier to hear, I think I used to love you. I don't anymore. There's nothing more hurtful than that, I think. But it happens. And it happens subtly. It happens in small ways. Where you've been going shoulder to shoulder, go, 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 and then all of a sudden you turn, and though you used to love, you don't know if you love them anymore. That is what the Church of Ephesus' problem is. That Jesus is saying, you've forgotten me. You don't actually love me anymore. Let me ask this question to you and press, press. When it comes to your Christian world, have you lost your first love? Have you, so to speak, rolled over and realized, I don't know if I love Jesus anymore the way that I used to. That you've been a Christian for a while and you've been doing, you've been around, you've been busy. But something's missing that you've spent so much time ministering to others that you haven't stopped to marvel the fact that Christ ministers to you, that that you've been holding on to the truth, defending it without realizing that Christ is holding on to you and delighting in that, that you've spent so much time worried about the needs of other people. Are they okay that you've not stopped to be in awe of your God? Now, it's not that you don't love God, but you know deep down that your love for Jesus is not what it once used to be. That being a Christian has turned into more of a chore or a duty or a habit. And maybe perhaps your love is fading. Now, it's serious. Verse 5 What does Jesus say? If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, it's clarified. That's not Jesus saying it's over, right? That's not him saying you're no longer saved and got to walk out. No, no, no. He's saying this. If you keep like this, this church will no longer exist. That the survival of this church depends on not do they just love the word, love to serve, but do they love Jesus? Now, the solution. What's the solution? Let me start with what the solution is not, and then let's see what Jesus says the solution. The solution is not, right? If you ask people, what, 
do church like this do, the ask the average person and say, well, they're probably a bit too gung-ho about their beliefs, right? You know, they, they need to get rid of their, their doctrine, they sort of sit loose a bit, their evangelical church, a bit, a bit less dogmatic, right? Now, there's two problems with that. Firstly, this. When you say, oh, Christian, don't be so dogmatic, don't you know, sit loose to your beliefs, stop putting your opinion onto others, as soon as you say that, you are putting your opinion onto someone else, right? You are being dogmatic about the fact that you don't want them to be dogmatic, right? You can't exchange Christian doctrine with neutrality. You replace it with something else, right? Everyone imposes their beliefs on everyone else, right? So one level doesn't work. But the second reason why Jesus doesn't say it is verse 6. You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, truth be told, we don't know what the Nicolaitans did. But we know that for Jesus, truth matters. And when you live a life opposed to that, he hates that behavior. So that's not the solution. What's the solution? Verse 5 is the antidote for those who are realizing their, faith, their love of Jesus is fading. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus has a three-step process. First is consider. Consider how far you've fallen. In other words, reflect. Think about Ponder. When was that time in your life that you had a burning passion, an infectious love for Jesus Christ? When, when was that for you? For me, I remember clearly when I was at university, I went through a season of significant doubt. And then God brought me out of that, and then there was, in that moment, I had such a love for Jesus that I'd never had before. That was the moment for me. When for you was that moment? Now, for some of you, Pondy, realizing, ah, oh, I don't have anything. You're coming up blank, right? And may I subtly suggest, if you don't have, you can't think about a time where you actually genuinely love Jesus. It's chance because you're not a Christian, right? You may have been around Christian things, you may be around church, but if you haven't had, a, you can't think of a moment. Step two is for you. Okay, so we'll come back to the moment. But for those who can think of that moment, think of a time in your life, it might be last year, it might be 5, 10, 20 years ago, where's that time you were love for Jesus, which is oozing? Think about that time. Hold on to it. You got it? You know that time? Take that time and compare the pair. Compare that time to this time. How far have you fallen? What's different? What's missing? So the first step is consider. The next step, what does Jesus say? Repent. Don't try and do better next time. Don't feel guilty and hide under good intentions. No, no, no. Repent. Undergo a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Now, as I said, if, you, if you're sitting there, you can't think of a time when you fell in love with Jesus, know this. A relationship with Jesus always starts with repentance. It's different to any other relationship you have, right? When I started a friendship with, let's say, my Matt, uh, mate Matt, right? It's not like we started that friendship and me said, Matt, I just want to say I'm sorry for everything, right? That would be weird, right? He's like, because we're both neutral. We're getting to know each other. But when it starts with a relationship with Jesus, you're not neutral. 
You and I have been a bad tenant in his house. We have lived without reference to him. We have been thankless. We have hurt other image bearers that he has made. We have done terrible things. And when you wake up to how bad the situation you are in is, when you wake up to that and realize that still Jesus loves you, that he died on the cross for you, that he would love someone like me, when you realize that, that moment, whoa, that and that alone brings out a love of Jesus like nothing else. You realize how bad you have been and yet how big his love is for you. A relationship with Jesus always starts with repentance, but it doesn't just start, it continues. So if you are feeling like you are like the church of Ephesus, your love is not what it used to be for Jesus. You know it's fading. You've realized that your love may be for someone else or somewhere else, that he's not your first love. Jesus is saying repent. In other words, be honest. Tell him that you've grown cold towards him. Tell him you've entertained other loves. Tell him you, have, you are falling out of love with him. Tell him. Now, if you were to tell any other person that truth, you would be filled with anxiety, unaware of what they're going to do and how they're going to respond. But Jesus is not like that. He stands with arms open, ready to forgive, ready to restore. You know his reaction. And with that in mind, you be honest to him. So that's step two. Step three. What does he say? Do the things you did at first. To restore your first love, return to the first works. He doesn't say, well, make up for lost time. No, no, what does he say? Think about what you were doing then, practically, and do that again. So think about that time, the time you had burning passion. What were you doing? You might have been more spontaneous. You might have been bolder. What were you doing practically? Who were you talking to? What was your behavior with the word and prayer? What were you doing? Think about one thing, just one thing. What is it that you were doing then? And Jesus is saying, do it again. Let me tell you the most precious place on earth to me. I've got a picture of it on the screen. That space means the world to me. Now, I know you're thinking, what the heck is that, right? That's the stormwater drain at Newport Beach on the northern beaches. Now, Sydney is a beautiful place. That is not on the top 100 places to visit in Sydney, right? But that place, when the tide was low, mind you, was where I proposed to my wife, Charlie, because I asked her about a year or two later to date me and then later to marry me on that spot. I know it's not fancy. I know it's not flash. But to me, I love it. And often couples go back to rekindle their love. They go back to the places that meant something. And when it comes for you and Jesus, there are places that mean something, right? And often it is somewhere near the cross, so to speak, where you learnt for the first time, a place where you learnt that though you didn't deserve it, 
He loved you. And you, your heart was awakened by the Spirit, and you felt in you that love. Jesus is saying, go back to those spots. Do what you did. Recapture that love. Now, a warning. This is a big warning when it comes to this. This is not instant, right? It's a short verse, verse 5, and you think you read it, and if you think you can just do it within this sermon or in a couple of minutes, you're fooling yourself, right? It's amazing how many people who have relationship difficulties go to see a counsellor once, twice, three times and be like, well, it's not working, that's it, right? What do you expect? It's not going to be three hours and boom, right? It takes a long time to fall out of love. It takes a long time to rekindle it. Right? It takes a long time. And we live in an instant world, and recapturing your love for Jesus is not like two-minute noodles, right? It's not going to happen like that. It takes time. So set your expectation. But friends, I, I have seen, and in this show, we have a number of people who their relationship with Jesus is more past tense. The glory days are behind them. And they're almost giving up. Is that you? Where you think, well, I became a Christian. It was exciting when I was young. And now I'm just going to coast until I see Jesus. Jesus is not done with you yet. He is not done with you. You know how I know? Because he is having this conversation with you. And his spirit is inclining your ears to hear it. That's how I know. When my parent, when my dad went through a season, he was working too much, workaholism, right? And my mum got out the suitcases when he came home one day and said, if you don't change, this is your future. Now, why did she have that conversation with him? Because she loved him. She wanted him to change. I remember a time when my mate, Steve, sat me down and said, I wasn't being a good friend to him, right? I was neglecting him. I wasn't being good. And why did he do that? Because he loved me. He wanted that friendship to continue. And Jesus is having this conversation with you because he has not lost his love for you. That door is not locked. That story is not over. Your story is not over. That you can have a relationship with Jesus that is heartfelt, that is sweet, that is genuine, that Christ loves you and you love Christ. And so that's why Jesus ends with a promise. Verse 7, to the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, most love stories, how do they end? And they lived happily ever after. Because it's what we long for. Perfect love. No broken love. No forgotten love. No forsaken love. No, no, perfect love. And that is what Jesus promised. Because he is victorious. Because he hung on the tree of death you can have access to the tree of life with him and never fall out of love, never have to recapture love, never have to regain love, but experience perfect love. And where you see Jesus face to face. Whoever is, let them hear what the Spirit says.